MSW Media. Hello, friends. Today's episode of The Daily Beans is brought to you by my favorite daily nutritional drink, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And we thank them for their support. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, March 4th, 2022. Today, we get the public filing from the 1-6 committee, and it states it has a good faith belief that Donald Trump committed federal crimes. Biden sanctions several more Russian oligarchs. Peter Navarro skips his 1-6 committee deposition as the committee subpoenas Kimberly Guilfoyle. And a former Fox News director is indicted for violating Russian sanctions. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final day of my vacation, quote unquote, vacation. Today, I'll be going over a few headlines that that just sort of popped up in the news totally unexpectedly, despite that long discussion I had about what we were expecting with Hugo Lowell. And I'll also be talking to Genevieve Grabman, who has an incredible story to tell, and her new book, which is out now called Challenging Pregnancy. We'll discuss that. And like I said, just about an hour after I spoke to Hugo yesterday, the filing we were talking about was made public. So I'm going to go over that a little bit, though you can expect to get a full deep dive on the next cleanup on aisle 45. So let's start with some brief headlines today. After Kimberly Guilfoyle had a hissy fit during her voluntary interview before the 1-6 committee, because I guess she wasn't expecting Adam Schiff, a member of the fucking committee, to be there, the committee says, fine, you're officially subpoenaed. And, um, you know, she's like Bannon. She's less like Meadows. She's, she's more like Bannon. Zero claim to executive privilege of any kind. So she'll be charged pretty quickly, I think, by the DOJ if she fails to show up for her, you know, for the date on the subpoena. And no, she can't marry Don Jr. and invoke spousal privilege because that's not how that works, meaning retroactively. And it has to be about marriage stuff or something. It just it's, it won't work. And uh, Navarro failed to show up yesterday for his deposition. And he was actually subpoenaed. So we'll see what happens there. He claims falsely that weak sauce claims to executive privilege somehow excuse him from even having to appear. Now, he is an advisor to the president, so he is claiming executive privilege, which he does not have. But, you know, we're, we've been waiting, what, 82 days to see if Meadows is going to get indicted by the DOJ for his contempt. But anyway, he doesn't have privilege. It's been shown over and over again to be untrue, and he's an idiot. But we'll see what happens. I think we're kind of waiting to see what goes on with Meadows. And the Fox guy that was indicted in the Southern District of New York for violating Russian sanctions, those were the old 2014 sanctions, the annexation of Crimea sanctions. And he helped a Russian dude who was sanctioned during that Crimea annexation to start a news network. So this Fox guy helped a Russian guy start a Russian network. What a shock. And he's indicted on two counts, one of lying to investigators, 18 U.S. Code 1001, and violating the International Emergencies Economic Powers Act, Title 50, U.S. Code 1705, and multiple executive orders outlining those sanctions. I have a feeling we'll be seeing a lot more of these indictments in the coming years if Democrats can hold the White House. And new sanctions today announced by Biden include oligarchs and elites and their families. 
And there's some names that you'll recognize from this list if you've been listening to Mueller, she wrote in the Daily Beans for a while. Um, there's Nikolai Tokarev, his wife, Galina, daughter, Maiva, and his two luxury real estate companies. There's Boris Rotenberg, his wife, Karina, and his sons, Roman and Boris. There's Arkady Rotenberg, his sons, Pavel and Igor, and daughter, Lilia. There's Sergei Chemazov, his wife, Yekaterina, his son, Stanislav, and his stepdaughter, Anastasia. And Igor Shuvalov, his five companies, his wife, Olga, his son, Yevgeny, and his company, Anjet, and his daughter, Maria, and her company. So they all have companies, I guess. Here's one you'll know. Yevgeny Prigozhin, his three companies, his wife, Polina, his daughter, Lyubov, and his son, Pavel. And then Dmitry Peskov, you'll recognize as well. He's President Putin's press secretary. And finally, we heard about this, Alisher Usmanov, his super yacht, one of the world's largest $600 million yacht was just seized by Germany, and his private jet, one of Russia's largest privately owned aircraft. And the Department of State is also announcing new visa restriction policies to restrict the issuance of visas to certain Russian oligarchs, their family members, and close associates. They're known to direct, authorize, fund, significantly support, or carry out malign activities in support of Russia's destabilizing foreign policy. In an initial action under this policy, we have taken steps to place visa restrictions on 19 oligarchs and 47 family members and associates. And now with that, I'm going to cover the committee filing that we got last night. This is big, huge, amazing stuff. And because it came out after the news day, it sort of got lost in the news. And all day today, of course, we're talking about Ukraine. So this sort of got lost a little bit, but this is very, very big, big, big news. And um, that is that the committee believes it has evidence, good faith evidence, that Donald and Eastman committed crimes. But that's not what the filing is about, right? The filing is actually a response to John Eastman's assertions that he has some sort of attorney-client privilege over emails he sent from his Chapman University email address. Now, the committee's been trying to get these, and he keeps slow-rolling them and, and putting them on privilege lists and not really saying why they're privileged. He's just being a pain in the ass. So the committee said, okay, court, we're going to file this opposition to his privilege, you know, things that he says are privileged. And uh, here's seven reasons his privilege claims are bunk. Now, of course, the big news reason is you can't claim attorney-client privilege over crimey communications. And the committee says, hey, the court should review these emails in camera for crime and fraud because we have evidence that Trump obstructed an official proceeding and conspired to defraud the United States government, 18 U.S. Code 1512C2 and 371, respectively. But that's just one reason, the crime-fraud exception. Another is that they were on Chapman University's server which says when you log in, you have no reasonable expectation to privacy. It says that. But he, he kind of ignores things in writing, which we'll get to in a minute. Another reason the committee has asked for months for Eastman to produce a signed agreement of representation. Show me where you signed an agreement that you are representing legally Donald John Trump. The only thing he finally produced months later was a thing that was not signed by anyone. The signature blocks are left blank. And it says that he's representing Donald J. Trump Campaign, Inc. I don't know what that is. Anyway, he probably wrote it about a week ago. I would love to see the metadata on that document. Either way, it's not signed, so it doesn't matter. Another reason he can't claim attorney-client privilege is because Eastman said Trump told him to discuss his idea about Pence throwing out the electoral votes publicly. He even said that on some dipshit podcast. He went on the podcast and said, yeah, Donald Trump told me to talk about this. 
that waves attorney-client privilege when you talk about the communications publicly. You can't do that and claim attorney-client privilege. Another reason, he sent the emails to a bunch of third parties that don't qualify as exemptions to the third-party waiver of attorney-client privilege. Meaning, if my lawyer sends me an email and I forward it to my friend who's not a lawyer or not a client or not a, you know, a representative of my attorney, then I'm waiving privilege on that communication. It's no longer between me and my lawyer. That's what defines attorney-client privilege is that it's confidential. If you give it to everybody and say it on a podcast and write it in a book, it's not fucking confidential anymore. You can't claim privilege over it. Stupid. Another reason is that the committee believes an in-camera review will show that Trump and members of his campaign engaged in common law fraud. So we got the crime part, right? We got the crimes. 18 U.S. Code 1512C2 and 371. This is the fraud part of the crime fraud exception. And another reason is that the committee can't get this info anywhere else and they need it. And that's another thing that waives that kind of privilege. And finally, Eastman tried to say his shit is privileged under the legal work product doctrine, and they blew that out of the water. That requires your communication to be in preparation for litigation and not other stuff. That's not what this is. So I have to share, though, this is a 61-page filing. I really encourage you to read it because there's a lot of really interesting information on there. There's a lot of interesting footnotes that tell you what they know and who they got that information from, like some stuff from Jason Miller. When Jason Miller sat down and told the president, like, Barr's right, dude. There's no election fraud. You lost, bro. Jason Miller. He told that to the committee in deposition. So we get little peeks into what some of some folks have said, have told the committee. But like I said, we're going to be going over this in detail on Clean Up on All 45 next week. But I have to share, though, one of my favorite exhibits from this filing, which is some, some of the deposition of the former DOJ guy, Donahue. Okay, He's the one who took those notes when Trump was on the call with Rosen, when Trump was like, just say, just say that, that uh, it's corrupt and the Republicans in Congress and I'll take care of the rest. And Donahue was asked in this deposition about a meeting they had in the Oval Office. And I'm just going to read this to you because it's some of the best testimony I've heard. And I hope this meeting ends up in a series, the series about January 6th that my friend Billy Ray is working on. I just want to put that out into the universe. I think that should happen. All right, so let's read this here. It's from page 123 of the the interview. And, uh, you know, the, the exhibit doesn't include the entire deposition transcript. It's just the pertinent parts to to what they're trying to prove and what is referenced in their filing. All right. The question is, who was inside the meeting when you got there? And he says, when I entered the Oval Office, the president was behind the desk and it was Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, a White House lawyer named Eric Hirschman, Jeffrey Clark, Jeff Rosen, Steve Engel, and me. Question. Are you sure Mr. Hirschman was a White House lawyer? Answer. He was a lawyer who worked at the White House. I'm not. Initially, I thought he worked at the White House counsel's office, but I think later someone told me that wasn't the case. I don't remember. His role was never clear to me. I know he was a lawyer from New York. I know he had been a prosecutor at some point, but I don't know what his title exactly was. I'd seen him in some meetings previously, but I didn't know exactly what his role was. Okay. Question. All right. And again, no notes of this meeting. Is that right? You didn't take notes. You were inside the Oval Office and you indicated before you didn't take notes when you were in discussions inside that office. Answer. No. Question. All right. Well, tell us what you remember then about the conversation. What was the topic when you arrived and how did it evolve from there? Answer. The meeting took about uh, two and a half hours from the time I entered 
It was entirely focused on whether there should be a Department of Justice leadership change. So the election allegations played into this, but they were more background than anything else. And the president was basically trying to make a decision and letting everyone speak their minds. And was, it was very blunt, intense. Um, it took several hours. And Jeff Clark certainly was advocating for change in leadership that would put him at the top of the Justice Department. And everyone else in the room, everyone else in the room was advocating against that and talking about what a disaster it would be. Question. What were Clark's purported bases for why it was in the president's interest for him to step in? What would he do? How would he change things, according to Mr. Clark in the meeting? Answer. He repeatedly said to the president that if he was put in the seat, he would conduct real investigations that would, in his view, uncover widespread fraud. He would send out the letter he had drafted and that this was the last opportunity to sort of set things straight with this defective election and that he could do it and that he had the intelligence and the will and the desire to pursue these matters in a way that the president thought most appropriate. Question. You said everyone else in the room was against this. That's Mr. Cipollone, Mr. Philbin, Mr. Hirschman, you and Mr. Rosen. Where, uh, what were the arguments that you put forth as to why it would be a bad idea to replace Rosen with Clark? Answer. So at one point early on, the president said something to the effect of, what do I have to lose? If I do this, what do I have to lose? And I said, Mr. President, you have a great deal to lose. Is this really how you want your administration to end? You're going to hurt the country. You're going to hurt the department. You're going to hurt yourself with people grasping at straws on these desperate theories about election fraud. And is that really in anyone's best interest? And then other people began chiming in. And it's that kind of in the way, that's the kind of the way the conversation went. People would talk about the downsides of doing this. And then, uh, and I said something to the effect of, you're going to have a huge personnel blowout within hours because you're going to have all kinds of problems with resignations and other issues. And that's not going to be in anyone's interest. And so the president said, well, suppose I do this. And I was sitting directly in front of the president. Jeff Rosen was to my right. Jeffrey Clark was to my left. The president said, suppose I do this. Suppose I replace him. Jeff Rosen with him, Jeff Clark. What do you do? And I said, sir, I would resign immediately. There's no way I'm serving one minute under this guy. Pointing to Jeff Clark. And the president turned to Steve Engel and said, Steve, you wouldn't resign, would you? And Steve said, absolutely, I would, Mr. President. You leave me no choice. And I said, this is Donahue. And I said, we're not the only ones. You should understand that your entire department leadership will resign. Every assistant attorney general will resign. I didn't tell him about the call or anything, but I made it clear that I knew that they were going to do it. And as I said, Mr. President, these aren't bureaucratic leftovers from another administration. You picked them. This is your leadership team. You sent every one of them to the Senate. You got them confirmed. What is this going to say about you when we all walk out at the same time? And I don't even know what's going to happen to the U.S. attorneys community. You could have a mass resignation amongst your U.S. attorneys. And then it would trickle down from there. You could have resignations across the department. And what happens if within 48 hours we have hundreds of resignations from your Justice Department because of your actions? What does that say about your leadership? So we had that part of the conversation. Steve Engel, I remember, made the point that Jeff Clark would be leading what he called a graveyard. There'd be no one left. How's he going to do anything if there's no leadership really left to carry out any of his ideas? And I made the point that Jeff Clark is not even competent to serve as attorney general. Quote, He's never been a criminal attorney. He's never conducted a criminal investigation in his life. He's never been in front of a grand jury, much less a trial jury. And he kind of retorted by saying, well, I've done a lot of very complicated appeals and civil litigation, environmental litigation and things like that. And I said, that's right. You're an environmental lawyer. How about you go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill? <laughs> that's so burn. 
And, and it got very confrontational at points, Eastman continues. And Pat Cipollone weighed in at one point. I remember saying, you know, that letter that this guy wants to send, that letter is a murder-suicide pact. It's going to damage everyone who touches it, and we should have nothing to do with that letter. I don't even want to see that letter again. That's the letter about to Georgia. And he, Donahue, continues, I remember Eric Hirschman chimed in several times saying that whatever Jeff Clark wanted to do or thought he could do, there was no reason to think he could really do it. And I remember saying at some point, you know, Jeff wouldn't even know how to find his way to Chris Ray's office, much less march in there and direct the FBI what to do. And that if you walked into Chris Ray's office, he wouldn't even know who you were. So we had these conversations, went around and around, very blunt and direct, went on for two and a half hours. Question, at one point, did the president disparage Mr. Rosen or talk about Mr. Rosen's inaction or unwillingness to do anything about the election? Answer, he did say several times, you two, pointing at Mr. Rosen and me, you two haven't done anything. You two don't care. You haven't taken appropriate actions. Everyone tells me I should fire you and things of that nature. And then question, did uh, Mr. Cipollone say anything about what he would do with respect to a potential resignation if the president made the change? Answer, he did at some point. I guess he was, it was on the heels of talking how there would be resignations in the department. And I think Pat Cipollone said, well, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm not going to be here if this happens either. <laughs> question, so he said he would resign and not stand for it. Wouldn't be there. Answer, right. Question, who, Mr. Donahue, was sort of the primary advocate or voice against the leadership change? Was it you personally, or was it sort of a consensus of everyone equally chiming in? Or just give me a better sense as to sort of who was doing most of the talking and what was the most strenuous advocate who was? A, it was definitely a consensus. We were all on the same page except for Jeff Clark, but we played different roles. For one thing, Rosen was in a bad position because he knew he was defending his own job, so anything he said would be self-interest. And so he wasn't in the best position to make some of these arguments. And by demeanor, he just has a different demeanor, as does Pat Cipollone and Steve Engel. So everyone played their own role. My demeanor is more aggressive and more blunt, so I played that role. And everyone was on the same page, advocating for the very same thing. So that is the very fun and very interesting Donahue excerpt from his very long deposition. wonder what else is in it. Oh, one last thing, by the way. There was an exhibit attached to this exhibit N, the smoking gun email, I call it. This is an email from John Eastman to Gregory Jacob, who cooperated with the committee for a long time and is also former Vice President Mike Pence's legal counsel. And that email, I'll read it for you. It's dated January 6th in the evening, 944 p.m. Mountain Time. So very late at night, Eastman wrote to... Gregory Jacob. The Senate and House have both violated the Electoral Count Act this evening. They debated the Arizona objections for more than two hours. That's a violation of 3 U.S. Code 17. And the vice president allowed further debate or statements by leadership after the question had been voted upon. Another violation of 3 U.S. Code 17. And they had that debate upon motion approved by the vice president in violation of the requirement in 3 U.S.C. 15, that after the vote in the separate houses, they shall immediately again meet. He continues, so now that the precedent has been set that the Electoral Count Act is not quite so sacrosanct as previously claimed, I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation. Violation. And adjourn for 10 days to allow the legislature to finish their investigations, as well as allow for full forensic audit of the massive amounts of illegal activity that has occurred here. None of that moves the needle 
at least a good portion of the 75 million people who supported President Trump will have seen a process that allowed the illegality to be aired. So this made me wonder. When he said, hey, apparently the Electoral Count Act isn't as sacrosanct as you say, because the House violated it and the Senate violated it a couple times this evening on, on January 6th. For first of all, they debated the Arizona objections for more than two hours. And apparently that's not allowed under the Electoral Count Act. And also the vice president allowed further debate or statements by leadership after the question had been voted upon, which you're not supposed to do either. And so I remember thinking, why would they want to call up senators and congressmen to delay, to make it go slower, the certification of the results? Is it to allow the attack on the Capitol to happen? Or perhaps it was to allow a breach of the Electoral Count Act so that another one, another breach, another violation, where he says here, since the precedent has been set that the Electoral Count Act is not as sacrosanct as you thought, I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation. Makes me wonder if that wasn't on purpose, part of the Green Bay sweep, which Peter Navarro would be able to tell us about if he came in and talked to the committee. All right. Anyway, just waxing there for a moment. I appreciate you guys. Thank you very much for giving me the week off. I know this was a little bit of a long episode, but, you know, I had a lot to, to tell you. And so thank you for, for all your support and letting me take a little bit of time, a little mental health time. I will be back Monday with Dana Goldberg. But right now, after this quick break, we're going to have an interview with uh, Genevieve Grabman about her incredible book called Challenging Pregnancy. You, you must get this book and, and you're going to l- listen to the story. It's truly incredible. We'll be right back with that. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG for The Daily Beans. And today's show is brought to you by Athletic Greens, a health and wellness company specializing in convenient, easy, delicious, amazing, healthy daily nutrition. In today's a busy world, it can be very difficult to maintain healthy eating habits. I know it's hard for me. I have huge gaps in my nutrition because, first of all, I intermittently fast. I only in a very small window every day. I also am paleo. So there's a lot of you know minerals and vitamins and probiotics and stuff that are left out. And also I need those kind of probiotics to keep my digestive health like healthy because I, you know, I, I have a very limited diet. And because of those gaps in my diet, that is why I decided to try AG1 by Athletic Greens. It's amazing. A single scoop of AG1 has everything you need. You know, I used to have 20 different products of vitamins and minerals and hair stuff and superfoods and, you know, green wheat, you know, just like it and probiotics, like everything all over the place. But this is one convenient, delicious drink. And it's so easy to pick up this habit. You're going to love it. It's a tasty drink with bioavailable ingredients. It's an excellent alternative to all those multiple pills and supplements and products. And it fits with Keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, and gluten-free lifestyles. It has less than one gram of sugar in AG1. There's no GMOs or chemicals or artificial ingredients, and it's delicious. It's amazing. And I like that Athletic Greens also updates their research as the science changes. Uh, You know, most supplements hit the market, and they don't ever change, but the science does, and that's weird. But AG1 has undergone 53 improvements based on the latest research in the last decade alone and counting. So I highly recommend it, and to make it easy and awesome, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase when you visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans today to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Everybody, welcome back. I'm happy to be joined today by the author of the new book, Out Now, 
Challenging Pregnancy, A Journey Through the Politics and Science of Healthcare in America. Please welcome Genevieve Grabman. Genevieve, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for, for joining me today and thank you for writing this book. I think it's it's so important that we share our stories and talk about how it relates to to healthcare in, in the United States, especially now with what's happening in the Supreme Court. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to, to write this book and, 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 and give us an overview of, of what it's about? Well, uh, what prompted me to write the book is the fact that um, I got pregnant with twins and I didn't think the pregnancy would stick. And when I finally found out that, in fact, I remained pregnant, something seemed very wrong with the pregnancy from about eight weeks in. And the doctor was doing a scan of the pregnancy. I had gone in and I thought what I had was something called a blighted ovum, which I needed to just have removed, surgically removed with a, you know, a DNC or something else to get it out of me so it didn't make me sick. And instead... What the doctor found is she's like scanning the depths of my being. And she says, oh, there are two in there. And I sat up and I dropped the F-bomb on her because I was so upset. Um, I said, what do you mean? And then she said, but something doesn't seem right. And indeed, that was my, (laughs) that kicked me off into uh, 34 weeks of something doesn't seem right of with the pregnancy. but. What prompted me to write this book is that during the course of trying to save this pregnancy and to figure out what could be done with the fact that my the fetuses I was uh, carrying had something called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, which meant essentially their blood vessels had intertwined. They, they, they met across the amniotic sac. And that means that one baby's heart pumped all its blood to its twin. And the other twin's heart wasn't really functioning at all. And so one fetus was draining out of blood and didn't really have any amniotic fluid around it, wasn't growing. Whereas the other twin was like getting filled up with blood and he got this giant ballooning amniotic sac. And so as you can imagine, once you have like massive cardiac problems and like absent amniotic sac, ballooning amniotic sac, pregnant person carrying around a like distended weird uterus because of all this ballooning and other stuff going on, things aren't going well. Mm. And because this is rare, very few doctors knew what to do. So I'm there late at night. I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I also have a master's of public health from Johns Hopkins, which is a pretty good public health school. Yes. So I know, I know how to do, I know how to do research. Like that's the one thing I can do really well. So I'm there late at night, like reading through medical articles. And I thought, why am I, I can't keep all this information to myself. So my first impetus was just to compile all this information that I was collecting for myself and to put it out there so nobody else had to troll the depths of like JAMA at midline at two in the morning. But then, but then there became a different reason why I was writing this book. We started to see, and we started to notice that the attacks on reproductive health care were becoming more and more acute, especially under the last presidential administration. And that after um, Justice Ginsburg died and was replaced by Justice um, Barrett, we knew that the Roe v. Wade's days were numbered. And so I timed this book and my publisher was awesome because it worked with me. 
to have the pre-launch be <laughs> on the day that Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization was argued in the Supreme Court and the official publication to be yesterday, March 1st, because we expect the decision in Dobbs to come down any second. And that's why I wanted to move from a personal conversation about what happened to me and even a personal compilation of knowledge that might be able to help a few people who had the same problem I did to a national conversation about what pregnant people need and why healthcare access affects all of us and is critical to remain in the hands of the patient and the doctor, but not with politicians and justices who haven't the foggiest clue what to do in a very complicated pregnancy. And how did national anti-abortion politics impact your pregnancy specifically? They National abortion politics changed what my doctors could say to me, the very words they could use. They changed the tech, the politics changed the techniques that the doctors could have. It changed the ability that the doctors could have to intervene. And by that, I mean to provide me fetal surgery to try to save my life and the lives of the fetuses that I carried. And ultimately meant that my wishes in my pregnancy were not respected and were overridden. And so each step of the way, I, as a fairly savvy advocate in reproductive rights and also for myself, because recall, this is my pregnancy in my body, um, kept trying to argue for something that would save at least one fetus, first me, then one fetus, then two fetuses. But the goal was not just to create life, but to create meaningful, healthy life and to maintain my meaningful and healthy life. And each step of the way, I was blocked. And so in the end, the clock ran out, and I was left for the last two months of my pregnancy where no further surgical interventions were possible, just to wonder who got to survive this pregnancy. What would the outcomes be? Including yourself. No one knew. Including yourself. Including myself. Wow. Um, You mentioned that Johns Hopkins, you're a very savvy researcher, politically savvy. I remember, you know, when I was working at the Department of Veterans Affairs, trying to get my health care as a veteran established, I had sort of an inside track, right? What someone would call privilege. And I was wondering if you talk about that in your book, because not everyone has a master's of public health, Johns Hopkins. Not everyone is politically savvy. Uh, how much more difficult it must be to navigate these circumstances for for those people. Let me put a finer point on privilege. I'm also white. I'm also upper middle class. I have benefit of a lot of good education. And so I live in America. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I have a ton of privilege. I mean, I ooze privilege, right? I live in the capital of the free world. And so I talk about that a lot in the book because were I anyone else, including a person of a different color in the United States, and absolutely if I lived in a different country, my pregnancy would have had a very different outcome. The outcome I had turned out to be a good one, not to like spoil the plot here, but it turned out we all survived. Nobody died in the, you know, in the... (laughs) In the making of my book or in the course of my pregnancy, except for perhaps a parasitic triplet, but we'll go into that later. Um, I know. 
but um, nobody died. Uh, nobody was aborted. And um, I didn't die. I'm here. I'm talking to you. But I advocated and fought every step of the way. And I had doctors who advocated and fought for me, despite the fact that they were being blocked by their own hospitals. And if I didn't have that combination and I threw money at it, I took the money bag and I shook it over the problem. And I had health insurance. I had fantastic health insurance. And you want to know for, I had a yearly plan and I have like a a maximum amount of -of out-of-pocket expenses, right? That, um, and then I went into catastrophic coverage. I exhausted my maximum out-of-pocket expenses in February of the calendar year because of all the scans and I didn't even go to fetal surgery. That was just the scans, the ultrasounds Mm -hmm. and the the Dopplers to monitor the fetus's hearts. And then I went into catastrophic healthcare coverage. So I had all that and still the end, the results of my pregnancy relied on luck. Mm -hmm. And that is again, getting back to the national conversation I'm trying to have. The outcome of a pregnancy, no matter who the person is, no matter that person's color, and no matter where that person is located, the outcome of that pregnancy should not depend on luck. It should depend on science. It should depend on skill of the physicians involved, and it should depend on the pregnant person's own will. Choice. Yeah. Choice. Can you talk a little bit about some of the obstacles uh, or maybe just one, something that the hospital blocked your doctors from doing? Yes. Let me go with two examples. The first is maybe a little bit of a more obvious one. Ultimately, when I I was discharged from one hospital's care to another because the first hospital could do nothing more for me. I'm going to talk about that first hospital second. The second hospital that I was discharged to where my maternal fetal specialist was located was called Holy Cross. And so you might intuit from the Holy and the Cross that it was a Catholic hospital. Catholic hospitals increasingly provide healthcare in the United States. They're a monopoly of healthcare in many areas, and there's no other option for maternity care in huge swaths of especially rural America where even any healthcare is becoming more and more scarce. What healthcare is there is often provided by a hospital that's affiliated with the Catholic church. And so that hospital um, has to respect the doctrine of the Catholic church. At such hospitals, things like sterilization are not permitted. So you can't get like a tubal ligation at a Catholic hospital. You certainly can't get an abortion at a Catholic hospital. And What is really significant for me at the Catholic hospitals where I'm located, they um, try to resuscitate several times any child born, no matter how mature, uh, premature, and no matter how sickly the, the baby is once it's born. Doesn't matter if the parents say, please, please, this is a 23 weeker, a 23 week old baby that's now been born, no developed lungs, nothing. This child will only survive in a terrible state. Please don't resuscitate the child. That's no. A Catholic hospital will resuscitate the child up to three times, even if it blows out the child's eyes, even if it blows out the child's lungs and the child will forever be left needing assist, blind and needing assisted ventilation because of the 
laudable belief of a dedication to life, but that belief about the dedication to life overrides first the pregnant person and then the parent's hope for what meaningful life might be. Yeah. And, qu- and quality of life. And quality of life. Yes. So that's one obvious example of what, you know, what happens in Catholic hospitals. But then even secular hospitals are still pretty cowed by abortion politics. And so in two hospitals that I tried to, uh, to get fetal surgery in as a way of trying to separate one fetus from the next so that if one died, it wouldn't pull down the other. To save one, Jade, basically to save one. To save one. I wanted to save one. And my doctors thought that that was also the best course of action. They advised it. They wrote to the hospital ethics boards asking to be permitted to um, separate these fetuses. And at both hospitals, at one at the, at the 11th hour, like I was prepared to fly there. That was like my last hope. And the ethics board denied those requests because they said, well, to save one would be to abort the other. And they simply, they could not, they couldn't allow that. It was too risky. It was too much. It, 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 it was too much of a cost. And so instead of doing what my doctors advised and suggested and what ultimately I wanted I was put in the only other position that could be had. I just had to wait to see what would happen and wait and wait. And that's a torture. Yeah. And, and, and not to mention having to make that decision to save one. Yeah. That trauma. But there's another option here, by the way. And my doctors pointed that out to me. You know, I could, I could wait and wait and wait until the end. I could try to save one or I could end this all and start again. And I could, by ending it all, I could terminate the pregnancy, right? And that was an option that ultimately, you know, I thought I could, I thought I could save this. We kept thinking we could save this, we could save this, we could save this. And then it started getting really late. And then I started getting denied by all these hospital ethics boards. And I realized like I'm past 20 weeks of my pregnancy and I can't save this anymore. And it's late. And, um, I don't have a lot of options for termination available to me anymore. I certainly don't have an option for termination available to me at my now Catholic hospital. And the doctors aren't able to tell me that the babies are not going to, that they're going to be born with any sort of brain capacity. They already can see that they have holes in their hearts. They already can see that one is not growing. He has what appears to be a tail. He has what appeared to be a parasitic triplet. He had a marginally implanted umbilical cord, which meant that he was hardly getting food, um, you know, blood through the umbilical cord. He had a, an, an unequal share of the placenta. So he was, again, resulting in his lack of growth. And then he was like, he was my pump twin. He was the twin that was pumping all his blood to his brother. So if he stopped, like there is just, he was in a terrible state. He just had nothing left for himself. And so the, the doctor said, look, you know, we can, it might be best that you just end this. You're still young enough. You can try again. You know, you weren't expecting, who expects identical twins? Nobody does. And so you can always, you can always end this and try again. And that probably is the best choice. That's the best outcome that we can give you. Nobody will be born. The most sick guaranteed, right? The most guaranteed. But again, once you've passed 20 weeks and then getting to this national conversation that I want to have, 
Uh, this was six years ago. Now, even fewer places are available that allow a post-20-week abortion. And if the court comes down the way we think it's going to come down in Dobbs v. Jackson, um, Women's Health Organization, then there's going to be very, very few places, maybe two, three states, where anyone could terminate a 20-week pregnancy of non-viable fetuses. Nobody was viable at this point. I was the only viable being around. And the fetuses were not viable, but still termination of them was difficult then and soon to be virtually impossible. And so the mother or the pregnant person is going to be asked to wait and again, see how debilitated are the fetuses that she's carrying? When might they be born? Will she hemorrhage and die before she can give birth to them? Those are the choices we're leaving women and people with if the court rules as we expect it to. And why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we permitting that this happens? We can see what is likely to happen, and yet no one seems to be doing anything about it. And again, why write this book? Because I'd really like us now, while we still can, to have this conversation. Well, thank you for writing it. I think it's very brave to tell this story, and um, I applaud you for that. Everybody, you can now get this book wherever books are sold. Can you tell everyone where to to find you and, and follow you? Sure. I um I actually I'm on social media. I have a website. It's um my my name, genevievegrabman.com. My publisher is University of Iowa Press, so you Iowa Press. And so it's always nice to support those academic and independent publishers. So I encourage you to buy through them if you can. Of course, the book is also sold on, on Amazon and any of your big box sellers and also your independent bookstores. So always try to look for it at your independent bookstores. But if, you, if it's too hard, your big box sellers and Amazon will come through for you too. Thank you so much for, for sharing this story and for your time today. I appreciate it. Genevieve Grabman. Everyone, thanks for listening today. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.